0: Tonight we pick up in Isaiah chapter 54. I'll give you just a minute to turn there. I'm fond of organizing thoughts. And having some sort of structure uh, to think around. And so with that in mind, now that we've hit this significant climax of the book in Isaiah 53, what follows here, chapters 54 all the way through 66, is two things. One is there's quite a lot of continuity. In fact, when we finish tonight in chapter 57, we'll, get, we'll hit again, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked Remember, that's how Isaiah chapter 48 ended. And so we have three equal sections at the end of the book, uh, 42 through 48, 49 through 57, and then 58 through 66. So there's continuity there. Uh, We will see tonight some reverberations of themes that we've seen before. Uh, like the barren woman who suddenly has children that we encountered in chapter 42, uh, like the reality of idolatry and the foolishness of it like we encountered in the early chapters of Isaiah, uh, in the early 40s of Isaiah. Um, but there is also a significant amount of discontinuity. Okay? And so the story continues, but a lot of what we're going to read about from here to the end of the book are the reverberations of what have what has significantly changed in Isaiah 53, and we'll get a taste for both that continuity and discontinuity tonight. So, chapter 54, verse one. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and crying aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Now, throughout the story of God's work in the Bible, we find barren women that God miraculously provides children from. We find, like it says in the Psalms, that God is the one who opens and closes the womb. And so Abraham's wife, Sarai, was, uh, was old, she was barren, and it wasn't until after she had passed through menopause that she miraculously has Isaac. In the same way, Jacob, uh, as well as Isaac's wife's, uh, barren and God gives them children. Um, Hannah, barren, and it's through her line that comes Samuel. Um, and so there's this repetition throughout, and even with the Messiah we saw last week, a virgin birth, uh, a uh, from the womb of the woman calling, uh, emphasized. Uh, and here we see this image again, but it's not being used of a particular woman. Instead, it's one of two things. Either this particular barren woman here is the city of Jerusalem. And that makes a lot of sense because as we move through the passage, we're definitely going to be talking about the city of Jerusalem. And so the other uh, possibility here is that it's broadly categorizing women into two categories. Those who naturally give birth and those who supernaturally give birth. And that list is longer than just uh, Rebecca and Rachel and Sarah and Hannah. Um, I would suggest to you, when we read the passage here, it would include uh, those who, um, like Jesus says in the New Testament, make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God, have no children of their own, and yet have significant numbers of spiritual children. This seems to be Paul's thinking. As far as we know, Paul had no children. At least by the writing of 1 Corinthians, he had no wife and had embraced the life of singleness for the rest of his life. But we find his children throughout the New Testament. Timothy, my true child in the faith. Titus, my child. In fact, he refers to all of the Corinthians as, you are my children. You may have many teachers, but you have only one father. And so notice how how that reading makes sense of what we're reading again. Begin in verse 1. Again, sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one, those who are barren, those who are without kids, will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes." Okay, and so the picture here is of, uh, of a nomadic family living in tents. And as you can imagine, a new addition to the family means a new addition to the house, right? You have to add another room. You have to expand the tent. You have to make room for more people. Notice here that he's exhorting the barren woman, whoever she is, to preemptively start nesting, right? Before the children are here, go ahead and make room. Go all out on the remodel. And he says, verse three, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. That's that last sentence that makes us think this is probably specifically talking about not just particular people, but God's people as a whole, represented as it always is through Jerusalem. The idea here is of the people of God, of the children of Abraham, of the uh, people of Israel even being expanded beyond its borders and inhabiting all over the world. And then notice as we move on here, verse four, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Now this passage is clearly referring to Israel. It's clearly referring to Judah. The issue here, remember, is that God had given them over in judgment to Babylon. They had gone into exile, and he says, but that's momentary. That's part of the plan, but not the end of the plan. As we saw in the first half of Isaiah, judgment is coming, but that's not the end of the story. And so so here it is, it is a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you and notice verse eight, in overflowing anger for a moment I had my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. A moment versus the everlasting. God is doing something that involves permanence, that involves finality, And then notice here he says in verse 9, This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so also I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and I will not rebuke you. Okay. And so he says, Just as it was with Noah. Remember in Genesis chapter 6, God looks on mankind and he sees that every thought and intention of the heart of humankind is always evil continuously, which is just chalked full of modifiers to extend how deep down, how problematic the human condition is. Every intention of the thought uh, uh, of the mind and the heart is always evil all the time. And so God brings judgment in the form of the flood. And he delivers by grace, because Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, Noah and his family. And at the end of that, he makes a promise. He sets a bow in the sky as if God, the warrior God, has laid down his bow. He sets it in the sky. He lays it down and he says, I won't bring that upon you again. I won't judge the whole earth again. And so where Isaiah is looking here, he says, in the same way. The bow will be laid down. The judgment will be no longer necessary. The, uh, the discipline was temporary, but the salvation will be permanent. In fact, he says, verse 10, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant peace will not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Now, notice throughout this whole thing, where is the emphasis, where is the cause of this consequence? What is the root happening? Why is it that there will be no more anger? Because God is compassionate, right? It's rooted in him and his character. It's not that Israel will be no longer deserving of judgment. It's not, long, not that they will set things right, but that in some way God will compassionately set things right. Side note, it's actually the same with Noah. It says uh, after the flood is over that God saw uh, well let's just take a look okay we already looked at genesis chapter 6 but just just for comparison go ahead and turn there so look with me at chapter 6 verse 11 now the earth was corrupt in god's sight As the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Okay, so that's where things start. Or if you want to look at verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. But then look over at chapter 9. So now the flood has happened, the waters have subsided, Noah is here, and Noah makes an offering. And he says here, Hold on, I'm just looking for the words that I want here. Let's look at 11. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then God makes the sign and the covenant, but I want actually, to, oh shoot, it's here somewhere, it's just hiding. Ah, there we go, all the way back to chapter 8, verse 21, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, that's of Noah's sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for, notice that, because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So he says he brings judgment because there's something wrong with the heart of God, or heart of man, and here he withholds judgment, but the problem is still there, okay, it's not mankind that has changed, but God makes a covenant with Noah. He lays down the bow. He does something differently. In the same way here in Isaiah, God is promising to bring something about. Uh, and it's intriguing to me. This just popped up, and I haven't had time to run this through. Um, the Bible is full of covenants, covenants that God makes with his people. Okay. Um, and so at the very least, we have the Noahic covenant, which we just looked at. And then there's the Mosaic Covenant, and then there's what we call the Land Covenant. Okay? Both of those are given in the book of Exodus to Moses and his people, and then to Israel about the land. And then there is the Davidic Covenant, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promises David, God makes to David. And then there's the New Covenant that Ezekiel and Jeremiah talk about and Jesus brings forward at the Last Supper. And those covenants are connected. It's not God starting a plan and then leaving it behind and starting something new. It's developing and building upon and building towards, okay? And so this is, this is fresh pondering for you, just something to think about. But it is striking how in each one of those covenants, it ends up being something that man fails and God does something about the failure, okay? And so I'll just give you two examples, Okay. God is looking for, uh, for a particular type of son out of David's line, right? I will build your household, David, and one of your sons will rule and reign eternally. But it ends up being God the son himself on the throne. In the same way, uh, in the bow being laid down, forgive me for being a little bit metaphorical here, but what way does a rainbow point? Upwards and not downwards, If you were to string the bow we call a rainbow and launch an arrow, it would be aimed at God himself. We even see this in Genesis 15. I've talked about it before. The covenant that God makes with Abraham. When he says, I'm going to bless you abundantly and I'm going to do all these things. He goes, how will I know? And He says, well, let's cut a covenant. And he divides the animals in half. And usually what would happen is both parties would walk between the animals. And the expression would be, whoever breaks this covenant, let you be like these animals. But God, in a dream by night, he walks through it alone. And he's basically saying two things. I will fulfill it, and my body will be torn asunder to make it happen, right? It's, there's this rhythm there. I've, I'm, I'm just scratching the surface here, but it deserves to be followed. But here in Isaiah, God is saying there's continuity here. As it was with Noah, so also with you, Israel, I have a plan to set things right. I'm working things out. And as we've already seen in Isaiah 53, it revolves around the suffering servant Verse 11, back in Isaiah 54. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I'll set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. Again, do you see here how we're clearly talking about a city? Even if it's metaphorical Jerusalem here, it is a city that we're talking about. And so it's a good reason to believe that the barren woman in the beginning is not a category of people, but a particular place. Uh, Verse 12, I'll make your pinnacles of agate, and your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. And so here he says, I'm going to take the city and I'm going to rebuild it, and it won't just be strong, but it will be beautiful. In fact, the peace for Jerusalem here is promised so significantly that building the outside of your city out of precious stones is an okay idea. Right? What danger could there be to outsiders, to thieves, and to enemies if your city is one giant national treasure? But that's what's pictured and personified here. In fact, this is similar, is it not, to the vision that John receives of the New Jerusalem, where he sees that the whole city is made of precious stones, and the, you know, the sidewalks are like gold, and every gate a pearl. Okay, again, John is drawing his language for what he sees from the book of Isaiah. Notice verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up, it's not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I've created the smith who blows the fires of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I've also created the ravenger to destroy. No weapon that's fashioned against you shall succeed. Okay, what is God saying here? He's saying there's no enemy army that I didn't build, that I didn't put breath in their lungs. There's no weapon that they've handled Uh, That I wasn't behind. Again, it's an expression of his sovereignty here. And so the recognition is basically to use language from elsewhere in the Old Testament. If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? If God is on our side, who should we fear? And so God is reiterating here that his plans for them, to borrow the words of Jeremiah, are to give them hope. It's of a good future. Right? It's of blessing. And so, verse 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Okay, and that word for vindication can also be, uh, also be translated as righteousness, or sometimes it's salvation. But the idea is that God is going to do something so great that there will be no adversaries left, no one to speak against. Again, this is Paul's great anthem in Romans chapter 8 when he comes to the conclusion of the fact that we've been justified by faith in Christ, that we've been filled with the Spirit and now are the children of God, uh, he, that we are all awaiting the redemption of our bodies as the sons of God. He lays all of that out and he gets to his conclusion and he draws on tremendously sim- similar language and this is what he says in Romans chapter 8. He says, after laying it all out, verse 31 of chapter eight, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us graciously all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised and is at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it's written for your sake we're being killed all the day long we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus Now Paul opens this chapter saying there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and then when he lays out the reason why he comes to the conclusion and he says what accuser still stands who gets a vote if God has justified right? Isaiah makes the same point. This is what he foresees as being, he, he says here at the end of 17, the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Chapter 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So what do we see? We see here in chapter 55 an invitation And an invitation is for sustenance, for nourishment, for good things, not just bread and water, although that's there, but also milk and wine, right? That's pleasure, that's joy, that's fat, that's the best the land has to offer. And there's an invitation. And so God basically says, I have what you need, world. And then strikingly, he says, those of you who have no money, come and buy Right? The glorious thing about the food that God has available here is he sets the price, and he sets it at zero. Now, again, because we've already encountered Isaiah 53, that doesn't mean that this bread was free in its cost, just that the cost has already been paid. Right? It's been paid on our behalf, and so here is an invitation. And notice verse 1 there, come everyone who thirsts. This is a broad and international invitation uh, to the table. And then a criticism, verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. So verse 2 takes this metaphor and it takes it further and it says you're wasting your time. Everything you're chasing won't bring what you're looking for. It won't nourish you. It won't satisfy you. He says, instead, take what I'm offering for free. Stop chasing and working and striving for the things that will not give life and take the life that I offer for free. Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. And so he offers here not just a feast, but an everlasting covenant. Now, when it says here, my steadfast, sure love for David, uh, that verse in the Hebrew is, is very sparse. There's only a handful of words there, and it's hard to know how they connect together. And so some people say that a better way to translate it is, David's steadfast love for me in which case this would be talking somehow about the relationship between God and David as in the Messiah. But it also may be, and I think this is the most appealing, that there's some way here that God is taking the Davidic covenant that we mentioned earlier, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Remember where he says, I will build you a house and I will give you children and one of your children will sit on the throne eternally. It seems to me by here him taking this uh, love for David and turning it into an everlasting covenant for all who come and buy, there's a broadening of the Davidic covenant. There's an inviting into it. One of the most striking statements that the New Testament makes on multiple occasions is that the trajectory of a Christian's life ends with us ruling and reigning with Christ. And so he holds the throne, he holds the throne to the universe, and he holds it alone with everything under his feet. But the New Testament also maintains that there's this, uh, there's this sharing in the rule of Christ. It may be here that that's what Isaiah is pointing to, this democratizing of the covenant that God made with David. Verse 4, behold, I made him a witness to the peoples and a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. A nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Again, we see this not just being a national uh, promise, but an international one. Nations that Israel's never heard of. Nations that have never heard of Israel are going to come, they're going to see, they're going to sit at the table. Jesus makes the same claim. In criticism of the religious leaders of his day, he says, I tell you the truth that when Abraham's table is set, people will come from nations all over the world, and they will have a seat at the table, and you will not. Right? And that's what Isaiah is talking about here. Verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. There's that word again. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, if, it, uh, if you have an older translation there, before abundantly pardon. Uh, anybody want to shout it out? Does anyone have something different than abundantly? I can't remember what it is. What, uh, abundantly is King James as well? Interesting. Okay. Uh, nonetheless, abundantly pardon. Okay? That's a superlative, right? What does it mean to abundantly pardon, right? When we think in a legal sense, when we think of the idea of justification in the court sense, either the crime is paid for or not. Either you've done the time or not, okay? If a judge comes in and pardons, it's kind of an all-or-nothing deal, okay? He may limit your sentence. He may decrease your consequences, but that's not a pardon, is it? That's a bargain, A pardon is an expunging of the record. So what does it mean here when it says that God is going to a pardon abundantly? Right? It's just a layer of appeal. No matter how deep you think your sins go, no matter how difficult you think your case is, no no matter how the evidence is stacked against you, the pardon that God has made available is abundant. It's overflowing. It's more than is necessary. It's gracious. Right? Now, Again, notice here, this is that same invitation put in different language. First, come and be satisfied, and now, come and be pardoned. Come and be forgiven. Okay. Now, again, the reason God can make this invitation and make it nationally and say that there's enough, that there's sufficiency, is because of that suffering servant again. It's because the penalty has been fully paid. I don't think I said it last week, but... Uh, but I've definitely said in the last few weeks, in First John, looking back on the cross of Christ, John tells us in chapter 1, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And it's striking there that he doesn't say that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and merciful to forgive us. That's what we would expect it to say. It says he's just to forgive us. This is why Paul, after laying out what Christ has done on our behalf, says that God did this whole thing so that he might be just, perfectly righteous, and the justifier of the unjust, the justifier of the ungodly. And so John says we can confess our sins in confidence, knowing forgiveness is available because God's justice demands it. Because everything we deserve, every consequence we're owed, every penalty that we deserve, Christ took on his own shoulders and it's been paid in full. It is finished. And so we see that same idea here. In fact, I love this. Look at verse 8. Because my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now there is a general truth here which is that God's knowledge is above us, right? That his ways are beyond our understanding. But do you see the little word that starts verse 8? It's that little word for again, because. So what's the context? What's the point that God is trying to make? My forgiveness is freely available if you'll just come because I don't think like you, and I don't work like you. He says something similar in the book of Hosea chapter 11. Remember, the story of Hosea is a prophet living out God's relationship with Israel by marrying an unfaithful woman, a prostitute. And then that prostitute leaving her husband, going back into prostitution, and Hosea is commanded to go find her, to buy her out of slavery and bring her back into the home, being a picture of what God's going to do with Israel. But the, the passion of Hosea The message of Hosea rises to its highest passion here in chapter 11, Uh, for context. Let's start in verse seven. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to, uh, to the most high, he shall not raise them up at all. And so the idea here is, okay, judgment is coming. It's permanent, it's irreversible right? But notice verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. Why? Because I am God and not man. Do you see the correlation there? Last time it was for my thoughts are not your thoughts. And here... Why is he not going to bring about his anger? Because he is God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Okay, he draws a distinction here. <clears throat> this is the superlative nature of God's plan. It's, it's incomprehensible. It's not a strategy that man came up with to set things right. It's not something that mankind brought to the bargaining table and said, Look, God, we know we screwed up. Here's here's the best we can offer to set things right. Instead, like Paul says in Romans, while we were still rebels, while we were still sinners, while we were the enemies of God, Christ died for us. The plan was there, it was present. As John tells us, the Lamb of God was crucified before the foundations of the world. My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. One of the things that we have to watch out for when we talk as Christians or when we approach Christianity for the first time um, is overvaluing comprehensibility. It's not that we don't bring our reason when we understand Christianity. That's how we think. It's you can't leave your brain at the door. There's nothing to you can't receive if you don't understand. You can't hear and comprehend. You can't believe unless you understand what's said. That's not what I mean but I mean uh, that if you, if you look at Christianity and you find yourself saying it's too good to be true, if you find yourself saying I can't imagine it's this will, I wish it was, right? Then you're probably getting right at the heart of what God is trying to express here, okay? There is an incomprehensibility. Not that we can't make the math add up, but we can't explain the reason. Listen, if you trace things far, ba- far enough back in God's plan of salvation, it traces back to God and God alone. It traces back to his character and his heart and nothing else. He's not like us. Now, some of my favorite verses in Isaiah uh, 55, verse 10. Again, notice it starts with four, because... So this invitation, seek the Lord while he may be found. First, I'm not like you. Second, my word is faithful. He says, "For for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return from there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Okay, so get the image here. He says, in the same way that rain doesn't just hit the ground and then go away, but soaks into the ground and through that all things live. Not just do plants sprout, giving seed to the sower, but also bread to the eater, right? He says, in the same way, verse 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. Okay. You know, when, when Lucy always pulls the football out from Charlie Brown... When you were in junior high and you always had that friend who would stick out his hand and then when you went to shake it would pull it back. That's not how God works. That's not how God is. His word is presented uh, and is permanent and is purposeful. This is not just an empty invitation. It's one that he says uh, will not return empty but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing that I sent it. And again, this is good news because the idea here is is where is the power of our salvation? It's in our faith, but only in our faith in God's word. The power is in the word of God. The life-giving is in the word of God. We see this in Jesus' ministry over and over and over again. Jesus' ministry is full of him telling people impossible things. He says to lame people, Rise, take up your be- bed and walk. He, ta- he says to a deaf person, be opened ears. As if they could hear. He's constantly telling people to do things that if you and I were to do, apart from the power of God, were to do to other people, would be outright offensive and would be even mocking. This is why Augustine prayed it's so insightfully, God, command what you will and then empower what you command. Because if that's there, then there is no hesitation, there's no hindrance, there's no blockade. Here, it's the same idea. He says, my word goes out and in it is the power for salvation. Verse 12. Again, one more four. Okay. So why should we respond? First, because God is different. Second, because his word will accomplish what it was sent for. And then lastly, verse 12, because you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up cypress; Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtles and shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And so the last, For, the last because, the last reason seems to be here because the outcome is so good, right? The picture here is of all of creation itself rejoicing and praising God, of the curse being rolled back and replaced as things were, as there being uh, no more, again, uh, permanency in God's salvation. I don't know if you ever uh, caught or read Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy, but one of my all-time favorites uh, says this. If you ever get the choice between heaven and pie heaven, choose pie heaven. It may be a trap, but if it's not, mm, pie. Right? Now, if you're not familiar with Jack Handy, then I, I'm completely beyond the pale. But, but in the same way here, the, prophet, the promise that God makes may be too good to be true, but that's just a measure of its goodness. That's just what makes it so amazing and incredible. And again, here we see that God's plan is not individual, is it? It's universal. It's beyond international. It's all of creation being restored. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says, all creation is longing for your redemption because with it comes their freedom, their restoration, the remaking of all things new. More of that when we get into the late 60s of Isaiah chapter 56. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds fast, who keeps my Sabbath not for profaning it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Okay, and so the first thing we saw in the last chapter was this great invitation, full forgiveness. But the second thing we see here is a commissioning to justice and righteousness. And we have a tendency oftentimes to separate these things and go, well, which is it? Is God aftering a free forgiveness or is he calling us to a new way of living, a way of justice and righteousness? But it's really both of those things. Okay? And so the New Testament talks about what God does in Jesus Christ in two different but compatible ways. Okay? One is that through Jesus Christ, we are given a new identity. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He lists all of these sinful identities, drunkards and adulterers, etc., and he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. We no longer are what we were. We're something new. That's why Paul says in another place, it's no longer Christ or excuse me, it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. It's a new identity. And again, that's not merely a label or a name tag. It's not just that you now have a Jesus disguise when you stand before the Holy God. It's that He's changed you from the inside. In the words of Jeremiah, he's, uh, he's written the law on your hearts. In the word of Ezekiel, he's taken your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. In the words of Jesus Christ, He's filled you with the Holy Spirit. In the words of Peter. He's given you part of the divine nature. He's made a partaker of, it, of your own nature. That's a new identity, which is by nature a new empowerment, a new life source, right? But also the New Testament makes clear that with that comes a calling. And so it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And he goes on and he describes it, and then he quotes from the book of Leviticus, and he says for you should be holy as I am holy, okay? And so there's a new identity in Christ, and then there's a calling to holiness. Be what you are effectively is the gospel, and don't get those backwards. It's not behave until you become. It's be what you are. And Isaiah has the same pattern here, and so there's a call that God is providing salvation, and that salvation is not just the ending of a sentence but the creating of a righteous people and so the gospel is also a call to justice it's also a call to righteousness to put it in a different way it's also a call to repentance go through acts and look at every sermon and look for the application in every one it's two things repent and believe the gospel Okay, this is repentance, and so read it again. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds fast, who keeps my Sabbath not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Notice there's a vertical. The Sabbath is this personification of worship in the Old Testament, a day that's devoted to rest, reminding yourself that you are not God. That you are not necessary as provider or as accomplisher or as worker or as craftsman. A reminder that you are dependent upon God as provider, as workman, as craftsman. right? It's a reminder uh, uh, that life is more than work. And a big significant part of that more is that God designed you for relationship with him, right? All of those things are entailed in the Sabbath. But also keep your hand from doing evil. And that is particularly horizontal in nature. It has to do with how we treat other people. As Jesus says, what are the two great commandments of the Old Testament? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But again, I want you to notice that that includes here justice and righteousness. And if you read the Old Testament, especially the prophets, you'll see this extensively, that is speaking about economics. It is speaking about injustice. Obviously, if we're talking about doing justice, we're talking about ending injustice. It is speaking about what we owe not just our next-door neighbors, but our collective societal neighbors. It's talking about, um, you know, the major trinity of the needy in the Old Testament, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner, okay? And if you read Jesus in the Gospels, you really only have two options. Either Jesus presents a political reform to Israel that they reject. And then he says, well, I've got you covered and offer salvation otherwise. Or the direct consequence of following Jesus is justice and righteousness. But Isaiah says here, that's what's coming. That's what's promised. And then notice verse three. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Now, I mentioned that discontinuity. After we hit Isaiah 53, we're in a brave new world. This is the first demonstration of it. Okay? The language that Isaiah is evoking here of the foreigner and the eunuch comes from the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, it says this. Chapter 23, verse one, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden union, that's a union between a Jew and a Gentile, may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite, no Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. Exclusion is written into the law. Okay. When Isaiah talks both about the foreigner here and about the eunuch, we're talking about something new. We're talking about a transition, something that's changed. Okay. Now, what I want you to notice is the words of this foreigner, of this eunuch, uh, right in the middle of verse 3. The Lord will surely separate me from his people. That's the idea of Deuteronomy. I will be on the outside. I will be distanced. I will be cut off. Notice verse four. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now you need to read that with a Jewish context in mind. Okay. The thing that was so significant in the Old Testament about the eunuch was that the first commandment the Bible gives, be fruitful and multiply, was no longer open to them. In fact, the reason eunuchs were castrated in the ancient world was to secure their loyalty to the lineage of the king and not their own. Okay. Remember, when we read this passage here, we're in a world pre-social security, pre-retirement. So what did it look like? Where was your retirement investment in the ancient world? Your children. They were the ones who were going to take care of you. And so by castrating a eunuch, it's not about his sexuality. It's not about keeping him out of the, you know, the royal henhouse, It's about children. It's about two things. One, now my legacy is your legacy. And two, now you have no security apart from the king. Okay. But what does God promise for those who will not have, who cannot have children, who will not pass on their name? right? That's another part. uh, The idea here of a name and a monument is the idea of a legacy. No legacy for eunuchs. But God says, I'm going to give a legacy, a name better than sons and daughters. And then notice two things. He says, I'll give it in my house and within my walls. Deuteronomy, not in the assembly. Isaiah, right in the middle of the temple. That's where your name will be known. That's where the renown will be. And then second, notice he says, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be what? Cut off. As an intentional play on word. Shall not be castrated. It's the idea here. An unending name. An unsevered name. There's something that happens in Jesus Christ that changes the game, that moves from Old Covenant to New Covenant, that moves from Old Testament to New Testament, that, uh, like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, fulfills the law in such a way that we're no longer bound by it. In fact, uh, well, let's let's hold off on that, but let's look at an example, okay? Interestingly enough, after Jesus raises from the dead, After he spends some time with his disciples and ascends into heaven, he commissions them and he sends them out and they start preaching in Jerusalem and then it spreads to Judea and then it spreads to Samaria. And when it spreads to Samaria, that's primarily under the influence of one person, a deacon in the church in Jerusalem by the name of Philip. And he preaches to Samaria and the whole city in droves comes to Christ. And so he's in the midst of this and then suddenly somehow quietly the spirit speaks to him and he says, come out to this road, which is wilderness. And while he's out there, he encounters a eunuch, an Ethiopian, a foreigner who's a eunuch. And he's reading. And what is he reading? He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. Okay, now let me put a few things in context for you in in, uh, Acts chapter 8. Okay, this man works for Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, and is tremendously wealthy. We know that he's tremendously wealthy because he has bought himself a copy of Isaiah, okay? Remember, this is way before Gutenberg was born. This was a handwritten scroll. Most times, a Jewish synagogue would have one copy of each book in the Bible that they shared as a community, and he has one all to himself, okay? Second, he's returning from Jerusalem, and he may, he may have been on government business, but he's clearly a seeker. And what would he have found when he got to Jerusalem? He no doubt would have gone to see the temple, which was one of the amazing wonders of the ancient world. Herod had spent 40 years remodeling this thing. It was incredible. It was bigger than you can imagine, okay? Uh, He goes and he sees it, and there's no place for him. He's excluded. Not only is he a foreigner, and it was such a big deal to the Jews, that foreigners wouldn't come past what they called the court of the Gentiles, that the Romans, to avoid violence, made them post signs that basically said, if you're a Gentile, no further than this, please, thank you. And then it said, death, death will follow for those who trespass, okay? It's right there, he's seen this, he's, he knows this. Maybe if he's sought out and spoken with Jews, he knows that he's fully excluded. Look, Deuteronomy 23. And so he's returning and he's reading Isaiah. And the Spirit tells Philip to come alongside and says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless someone helps me? And what is he reading in particular? Not this passage. That's not what he pulls and shows to Philip. The part he reads aside is from Isaiah 53. Somehow the Ethiopian eunuch understands that there's this pivot in God's plan and his place in the kingdom of God. And it somehow hinges on that servant. So what does he want to know? Who's Isaiah talking about? Beginning with that passage, Philip starts to impart the gospel and explain what Jesus has done, moving through the scriptures, explaining the whole story. And then this is the most important part. What is the question that the Ethiopian eunuch asks after receiving Jesus? He says, what would prohibit me from being baptized? Am I still excluded? Am I still on the outside? And Philip gets out and he says, there's water right there, and he baptizes him. There's a place. Jesus so fulfills the law that there's a place. Jesus so fulfills the law that the barren woman is now the mother of a multitude. That the eunuch now has an eternal name. These promises, I think, are still significant for many in our world who, uh, due to the reality of their own bodies, will not see God's design for marriage and family there's a place for them. What would prohibit them from being baptized? There's room, there's space. Okay, he continues on here after this, the eunuch, he talks about the foreigners in verse 6, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. For many of us in this room tonight, that's talking about us. Everyone who keeps his Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offering and their sacrifice will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Remember, the temple was a place that was just for the Jews. But Isaiah looks forward here and he says it's a time where all worship will become acceptable. And Paul doesn't talk about us bringing our sacrifices because Jesus' sacrifice was so significant, that's no longer necessary. But he does talk about us bringing the acceptable sacrifice of our living sacrifice, of laying our own lives on the altar. He does talk about the acceptable sacrifice of our praise and of our worship. We are now, uh, you know, the acceptance here of our prayers. In fact, for my house shall be called a house of prayer. That's what Jesus quotes when he comes into the temple specifically he comes into what I was just talking about the court of Gentiles and it's full of a marketplace it's full of all these people selling acceptable sacrifices he makes a whip of cords and he drives the animals out and he pushes all the sellers out and what does he say he says because my house Matthew 11:17, excuse me Mark 11:17, will be a house of prayer for all nations but you've made it a den of robbers what's his criticism there It's racism that he's concerned about. He's challenging the problem of the fact that the one place where the Gentiles could come was not a place where prayer could happen. It wasn't a place of peace or serenity. It was a place of market, of chaos. And he quotes this passage here. And then notice he says, verse 8, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Which is very similar to what John says—the uh, words of Jesus in John chapter ten, when he says, "I will gather other sheep from other folds." Okay. But I want to draw your attention to uh, Ephesians chapter two. Isaiah talks about a change, something new. In Ephesians, Paul makes it explicit. The majority of the church in Ephesus that Paul is writing to, like us, were non-Jews. They were Gentiles. And so here he talks about their condition before and after Jesus, and this is what he says. Verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, that's Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man and place the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I want you to notice the escalation here. What's it say first? First, we're citizens. Then we're in the household that God built on Christ and the prophets. And then notice finally here in the final verses here, um, He says here, verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see the final escalation? Citizens, a place in the house of God, actually you are collectively being built into the temple. In fact, do you notice the correlation in Deuteronomy between the temple and that exclusion? And now we have become the temple. Okay, how? united in Christ through his death and resurrection, sharing one Father and one Spirit, the two made one, all hostility broken down and ended. But Isaiah, that's the preview. That's what he's looking forward to. He's looking forward to a time, and again, it hinges on Isaiah 53. He continues here, verse 9, All you beasts of the field, come, devour. All beasts in the forest, his watchmen are blind. They're without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. Okay, that's jarring, isn't it? We've moved on to a new section here, and this again shows the continuity. This is the stuff we've been reading about in all of Isaiah, a stubborn and a blind people whose leaders are no longer leading. And so here he talks about the prophets, and he he refers to them as, uh, as watchmen, but they're blind right? Who would post on the city gates a blind man and say, hey, watch out for the enemy? Or he says a dog, right? And and dogs in the uh, area of intruders, uh, they bark. He says, but these ones are mute. They can't bark. And on top of that, they've fallen asleep at the wheel, right? He continues on verse 11, the dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They've all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. They still have a job to do, they're still getting paid for it, and that's what they love. They love the notoriety of being the watchman, of being the prophet, of being the leader. They love the paycheck. He says, but they have nothing to say, no understanding. He says, come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Okay, and so the picture again is one of impending judgment and foolishness that doesn't see it that's going to continue as we move into chapter 57 and this is one of the profound things okay Isaiah 53 changes everything and yet there is still wickedness and yet there is still unrighteousness and yet as we'll see in chapter 57 there is still idolatry and just as it was before the cross so also now is it still foolish Okay, and so chapter 57 verse 1 The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart devout men are taken away while no one understands for the righteous man is taken away from calamity he enters into peace they rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness Okay and so picture the world with me that Isaiah sees he sees a world where wickedness still dominates where the righteous go unseen and unprotected, and unloved, and the best peace they get in life is death, just the escape from the world in its wickedness. Verse 2, he enters into peace, they rest in their beds who walk in uprightness, that's talking about death. Verse 3, but you draw near sons of sorceresses, offspring of the adulterer and loose women, whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not the children of transgression, the offspring of deceit, you who burn with lust among the oaks under every good tree? Now, I want you to notice the language in verse 3, mocking, uh, sorry, verse 4, mocking and wagging tongues. This is the stuff we saw in Isaiah 53, right? God's anointed one, God's appointed one, but despised and rejected by men. And so the righteous that come, the righteous children of Isaiah 53, the ones that are his offspring... Despised and rejected, mocked and criticized. Notice verse five you who burn with lust among the oaks under every good tree, green tree, this is not just talking about sexuality but idolatry. Who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rock, remember that's the worship of the god Molech in the Old Testament. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering, you've brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? In other words, there's this broad reality of idolatry, of worshiping every God but the God of the Bible. Verse seven, on a high and lofty mountain, you have set your bed and there went up to offer your sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost, you have set a memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You've made it wide. You've made a covenant for yourself with them. You've loved their bed. You have looked on their nakedness. Again, using sexual infidelity as an illustration for idolatry. Okay. Betrothed to God, one husband and yet uh, and yet adultery. Verse nine, you journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent them even to Sheol. Okay, and so this has moved from the world of religious idolatry to the world of politics. Remember how much of the first half of Isaiah was about not trusting in other kings? not trusting in other governments, but only in God. The picture here is of them sending gifts to foreign kings, making agreements and covenants with them. And he says, you, you went as far to try and make a deal, it says, with the abode of the dead, with Sheol, verse 10, you were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it's hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. He says, you would go to such great lengths to find help but you won't come to me. Remember, this is the God who two chapters ago said, everyone come, all is forgiven, food without price. And yet these people are going to the ends of the earth looking for, again, things that will not satisfy. Verse 11, whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me and did not lay it to heart? If I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. Again, another issue that we saw earlier in Isaiah is self-righteousness. And here it's the same thing. He goes, all right, you want to talk about your righteous acts? Here they are. I'll, I'll speak them. I'll lay them out. But they'll do you no good, right? Because they're only a cover for wickedness. Verse 13, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Again there, an offer. Again there, an invitation. False hopes that lead to destruction or the one true hope. Fully open and available, verse 14, and it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Notice what God is saying here, okay? He's saying, I've cleared the way. I've removed every obstacle. He says, not only that, even though I'm the one who reigns on high, I also am present with the lowly. What is he looking for from these people? Not reform, but repentance. Not righteousness, but the humility, not to come offering their good works, but to come expressing that they have none and relying instead on God's free offer. He says, verse 16, "'For I will not contend forever, "'nor will I always be angry, "'for the Spirit would grow faint before me "'in the breath of life that I made. "'Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. "'I struck him and hid my face, and I was angry, "'but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. "'I've seen his ways,' but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore him and comfort him and his mourners, creating the fruit of his lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. Notice the opening of verse 19 there. God says, what I'm going to do is so full and comprehensive, I'm going to put the words on your mouth. Okay. He offers peace here. Peace, peace to the far and the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing of the sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up the mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Notice this. This isn't merely a threat of judgment. It's a warning of judgment. And those two things are different. Threats come merely out of anger and consequence. Warnings come out of anger and consequence and love. And that's what this is here. It is an open-handed offer. Like it says in uh, Psalm 2, kiss the sun while there is still time. He says, I won't always contend with man. The door won't always stand open. Peter puts it this way. He says, for the Lord is long-suffering and patient. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Repentance. For the time being, a door stands open, the invitation is there, God's patience is reflected in the fact that all of this wickedness exists in the world, and yet the world still exists. Right? And so the offer is here, and even when you hear there is no peace, uh, says my God for the wicked, that's both present tense reality and final outcome if things don't change. Right? It's a warning. It's something we know fully and truly. This is why a proverb says, The way of the wicked is hard. It's difficult. Okay. But again, it's sobering here that God provides this way of salvation, does everything that is necessary necessary, sends out the message, it said, of of the commander, uh, the commander of God's people of David that he carries the message, sends it out to the ends of the earth. Blessed are those who preach the good news. It's there, it's present, and yet there's still wickedness. And yet there's still steadfast, stubborn rebellion against God. These things still exist. Okay? If there's one last tension in the book, it's this. And we're going to see these two tracks running parallel, this free gift of salvation and God doing everything and abundantly for those who surrender for those who are his, and then this juxtaposition, which is why again, we've encountered verse twenty-one before. In the last part of the book that begins in chapter forty-two, at forty-eight twenty-two, we read, "There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked." And then we move another nine chapters, and we get here to chapter fifty-seven, verse twenty-one: "There is no peace for the wicked." And just to remind you, to complete the trio at the end of the book, in chapter sixty-six. And again, take some time this week and read, read through the rest of Isaiah. It's not too long. You're going to see tremendous problem, uh, promises of life and fruit and forgiveness and newness and all of these things. And then we get to the end of Isaiah, and this is the note that it ends on. Verse 24, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. So it ends with judgment. I've said it before, but when the Bible says that God is patient, it implies that he is withholding judgment, but not permanently. A God who never judges would not be patient but indifferent. He would not care about unrighteousness. He would not care about sin. He would not be just. But his patience is stoked by his love for his enemies. I want to remind you again tonight that if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, that was you. That's where we all were. That's where we all started. And so nobody comes out unscathed in life because of our righteousness. There's only two types of people, not good and bad, but forgiven and those who won't relent. Let's pray. Father, I'm convicted even in my own heart about that statement. Make the path straight, remove every mountain, pull aside every obstacle. Father, there's nothing left for us to do to come back to you but to surrender. There's nothing you ask for us but trust, just trust, just faith. And yet I know even my own heart, stubbornness and resistance, still oftentimes as it play still often as it is raining in my heart i thank you lord that paul says that he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it till the day of christ jesus our lord that you're not finished with me yet that you're still routing out every aspect every function of this old man of this one that paul calls the flesh I pray, Lord, that you would include in that routing out and swiftly for all of us, the self-righteousness that makes a distinction. Maybe we don't look down on the eunuch. Maybe we don't look down on those of another race, but we still look down on the other. We still look down on the outsider. And in doing so, we still cling to self. We say, Jesus and this other thing makes me just, makes me right. Nothing equalizes the playing field like the doctrine of justification by faith. Nothing relativizes the dignity and human worth of mankind and the necessity of a savior, like the cross of Christ. We know, Lord, that the door remains open. I pray, Lord, that we would have those beautiful feet that bring good news. I pray, Lord, that we would be, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, ambassadors of reconciliation, going to the world and saying, be reconciled unto God knowing that you've already done everything that's necessary and all they need to do is receive it. And let us not be surprised that there's still wickedness and evil in the world. Let us not be surprised when we face injustice, when we face uh, even persecution, Lord, because Christ was despised and rejected then. But one day you will come, like we saw this morning, in power, and in the glory of the Father with all the angels. One day, every knee will bow down and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God, give us that eternal perspective. We pray this in your name, amen. Amen, have a good night.